Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some comedies from Britain's Ealing Studios, as recommended by Gavin Mevius of The Mixed Reviews, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about the 1949 film Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, I'm going to apologize for my tone of voice and or demeanor. I'm a little bit more tired than I should be, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if this is sort of a a low-energy episode. Um, Thankfully... Uh, we should not have any interference from my old nemesis and roommate, Pre-War Radiator. Um, despite the fact that it's uh, been flirting with 40 degrees all week, um, it has not turned on yet. And I, for one, um, am thankful that I don't have to contend with the banshee screams and banging of uh, pre-war uh, improperly bled metallic radiators um, interfering with what we're trying to do here. And what we're trying to do here is talk about Kind Hearts and, Cor- kind hearts and Coronets. There it is, Sleepy Brain. Um, a film that I thought was absolutely delightful. Um, certainly not earth-shattering. Uh, it's not going to uh, go on you know, a, a potential list that I have of top ten best films I've ever seen. And certainly I won't even file, file it away as one of the funniest films I've ever seen. But a film that was an absolutely delightful watch from beginning to end, and something that I have to say I'm very thankful for, considering how much of a slog October and Dario Argento films kind of felt to me. Um, it was, it was, I had a, a lot of fun with this movie, and especially, like, I, I always am a little bit uh, trepidatious going into uh, a comedy film, because I'm sort of expecting, well, I, I guess I, I don't know what to expect, and I sort of think... And this is entirely my fault. Uh, what expectations do I bring to a film viewing? This is something I've talked about on this podcast before, but I sort of have this thing of, well, is this going to be one of the funniest things that I will ever see? Um, and that is not the way to approach any film. But I, I, I was a little bit uncertain as to what to expect because as Gavin talked about in the last episode, the tone and the type of comedy is sort of can range from anywhere to dark cynical humor to kind of slapsticky so I was I was kind of uh, wondering what I was going to get with this and um, it, it was a movie that I, I won't say made me uh, necessarily laugh out loud but there was mo- uh, many moments of uh, of real immense wit um, not just in regards to uh, how jokes are written, but also how the editing is used, and also the the performances and this stuff. And that stuff we'll we'll all get into. But it, it was um, one of the things, the funniest things that I found out that I was uh, or that stands out to me now is uh, last night I was watching this movie. Um, in the living room while my girlfriend was trying to sleep in the other room, so I was trying to keep things quiet, so I turned the volume down and turned the subtitles on, uh, which is, is, was beneficial to me because I, I think I, uh, I was able to then partake in, uh, or delight in a joke that I think I would have otherwise missed, um, which was, I believe it was the young Henry character, the, the... (laughs) 
one of the desk coins played by Alec Guinness, um, the one who was interested in photography and kind of hid uh, liquor in his um, uh, photo processing chemical bottles. Um, and uh, Louis, obviously on a quest to uh, eliminate all of the, the desk coins and on his quest to regain his dukedom. Is it dukedom? Dukeship? Dukiness? Anyway, um, on his quest to, to become a duke again after, you know, the, the historical slight on his mother, swaps out the chemicals uh, in, in his, his photo processing lab to cause an explosion. But the sound effect was a little bit weird. I didn't actually pick up that it was an explosion. So instead, what I got was this shot of uh, Louis just kind of sitting at tea with Edith um, outside in the garden in this beautiful day. Um, drinking and waiting for an explosion to happen in the background, and he's entirely straight-faced, and there's this there's a strange sound that doesn't sound like uh, what you'd typically think of an explosion, but then the subtitle pops up, so it's just in parentheticals or in parentheses, just says, muffled explosion. And he is completely nonplussed and just sort of um, staring straight ahead and doesn't even register that it was an explosion that he just heard, one that obviously he was the one that set up. And that was a great delivery of a joke and how um, sound and camera placement and acting and context really just added quite a, a delightful and humorous joke. Um, that was the closest, I think I said, to kind of like laughing out loud. There's certainly some plays on language and dialogue things, which was like, this is really clever. So, But, you know, not something that I think is one of the greatest, most witty films I've ever seen, but something that was just absolutely um, delightful from beginning to end, especially when you consider how the approach uh, that the studio and director Robert Hamer took to this film. I mean, it's it's based on a novel, so I have to assume, without having read anything about it or it itself, I have to assume the humor is sort of already inherent in the novel, but the, the plot is uh, one that could be taken in really any direction. Um, a, uh, a young man who is, um, who is kind of robbed of his inheritance because his mother was disowned by her uh, aristocratic family for the, the person that she chose to marry. Um, once she, is, you know, once she passes away, uh, she is refused or, or her, it is refused to allow her to be buried in the family crypt, and so he is stripped of his um, right to being, uh, or, or his, his, I'm sorry, I, I told you, I'm, I'm not mentally sharp as I, as I could be, but so, but basically th this guy is, is, on, uh, is out for revenge because he has been stripped of his right, uh, 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 of his inheritance and the lineage to be a duke, and so he's like, well, I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs> who is in line ahead of me, and I'm going to get my, my duke ship, my dukedom, my dukiness back. Um, it's a very simple story that could be taken in any direction. Uh, it could be, I mean, it, there, there's a, a darkness there. It, it could be taken in a, in a, in a dark, macabre, uh, dramatic revenge direction. Uh, it's almost kind of Shakespearean in, in the, the number of players which are involved in this scheming uh, kind of, uh, I don't want to say supervillain, but this, uh, this, this scheming uh, villain who has this plan hatched and will go to no, will stop at nothing to kind of achieve his, his, his goals. I, I'm not going to necessarily compare him to Othello, who is, well, not even Othello, Iago from Othello, who is typically thought of as one of the one of the greatest literary villains of all time. But it, there is something kind of Shakespearean about this plot. And so you have 
um, this this premise or this device of here's this guy who is going to murder everyone <laughs> that's ahead of him so he can get his title, his wealth, his some could argue dignity and pride back. You can take that in any direction. And, and not just the dark direction, but I, I could also, I could see if this was something that was being made today by a major studio, you could see it being played for broad appeal. Um, not even like an R rating, like a raunchy kind of uh, vulgar sort of comedy, but just like a, a PG-13 slapsticky kind of um, Mike Myers comedy, basically. Something which is, is not really challenging, is just kind of really goofy, and not taking itself very seriously. And not to say that Kind Hearts and Cornets takes itself seriously, but it does toe a very fine line between wanting to be funny and wanting to be dark, but not veering off into too strongly into one direction or another. It's a very fine balancing act, and it's it's done remarkably well. It's a wonderful achievement. Um, uh, and, and pulled off because it, it's, it, it's conveyed through this sort of quintessentially dry, not unenthusiastic, but certainly not bombastic or flamboyant kind of reserved British humor. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and what I something interesting that I read was upon hiring Robert Hamer to be the director, um, the producer, uh, Michael Balkin, I believe is how his name is pronounced, um, he said to Hamer, you are trying to sell the most unsaleable commodity to the British. Irony. Good luck to you. <laughs> and um, I don't know if Hamer maybe felt that that was starting him off behind the eight ball or if that was uh, not exactly the most encouraging uh, advice that he could have gotten. But it worked, and it worked because of the irony of this film, of the irony of how the journey corrupts our protagonist or the irony of how superficial um, and hypocritical these this comedy of manners is. I mean, the, the film works so well because of um, how it is a very self-aware, not self-referential, but self-aware film that is conscious of how it's depicting snobbery and dandyism of the upper class. I mean, you have these characters, the the, the Dascoin family, who they are very well dressed and they're eloquent and they live in a castle and they're obviously very wealthy and they're all shitty, horrible people. Or, not all of them, I, I mean the um, the the banker who took uh, who kind of took uh, Louis under his wing and, and taught him Louis himself sort of expresses uh, you know I was happy that he died of natural causes because it you know it would have he would he had some type of a soft spot and it's hard for him and the 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 bishop or the priest is is not a bad person but he is very feeble <laughs> and that's why he was kind of given the position of the bishop instead of. Um, uh, instead of being put in the line where he would inherit some type of money or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, but you have this family, and they're all mostly bad people. And the people who exist on the outside of this social circle, of this sphere of influence, are bad people as well. Edith does not seem to be a bad person, but Sabella is certainly a bad person. Um, the person, the, the man that she ends up marrying in lieu of, in lieu of, I don't know if I'm using that properly, so I'll rephrase that, 
the person that she ends up marrying instead of Louis is a bad person. Um, it's just it's just this idea of um, that's constantly in your face of hey these manners this is all an illusion these these rich people who claim to be who claim to be courteous and have respect and honor each other and all that kind of stuff it's it's all horseshit all of it, all of it is 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 bullshit um, and not just that not just the time that the film was made, but if you're viewing that uh, nowadays through this lens of, of the context of post-World War II, people who, you know, a population who had been voting for the Labor Party the first time, and this idea of um, a distrust of an aristocracy and, uh, and the, this uh, higher or an elevated social class and, and, and wealth and money and that sort of thing, it, it makes complete sense that it would be depicted um, this way, um, and what I actually found most interesting was how, and obviously this is intentional, of how this journey is, I, I guess you could even argue that the, that the journey for revenge corrupts Louis, because Louis starts out in a, in a bad spot, Louis starts out by saying, I'm going to kill everybody, <laughs> and we sort of have to be like, oh, geez, okay, um, we have to get on board with someone who is planning to murder an entire family so that he can be the one to, uh, to, to get his, what he believes is his proper inheritance. Um, but, it, but the film gives us enough of a reason to be somewhat invested in that because, well, he's only wronging these people because him and his mother were wronged first, and his mother is a good person, an innocent person, and the fact that she does not deserve what she gets sort of gives a, a little bit of relation and, and maybe validity to what Louis is doing, or at least we can sort of, as an audience member, we can sort of understand, like, okay, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm along for this journey. Um, and yet Louis is really no better than the people he is trying to kill. In fact, um, the... <laughs> This is really uh, a strange comparison, but I guess I'll, I'll say it anyway. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that uh, a while back I did um, a month on South Korean revenge films. And <laughs> it's strange that when I was watching this movie, the one that I was constantly reminded of was I Saw the Devil, which I know is really strange, but at least in, in that, that spine, that spiritual idea of... We're on board with the character when he starts out because something bad happened to the character. So we're we're on board with the idea of, hey, you need to enact revenge, do it. Go enact revenge. And then by the time the film ends, you're putting this awful moral quandary where it's like, well, yeah, the he he got his revenge and, and, and that person, that villain sort of had it coming, but also, God, how 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 much has this person given up his soul because of what he did? With that one, you know, the 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 titular devil being, you know, kind of the devil that we see inside this character that we're relating to. So it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation per se, but it is just that, just that kind of thing of uh, we're on board with Louis at first because if, if, if his cause is at least not noble, it's something we can understand and relate to. And at the end, not only has he partaken in the murder of most of 
um, a family line. There are uh, the two family members that he does not murder. The, the the captain who goes down with the ship in that uh, you know that notable iconic sort of scene of, of Alec Guinness kind of sinking into the water, which almost killed him, and the banker who dies of of natural causes as an old man. But he kills everybody else in this family, and along the way, also, if not turns Sibella into a bad person, then at least exacerbates and sort of uh, teases out a badness which was inside of her already. Um, Sibella is also not a great person. When we when we uh, are really first introduced to her, not even introduced to her, but when we're starting to be familiarized with her, it's, it's sort of this idea of we know that Louis has affection for her, which seems like genuine affection. He, he loves her, he wants to marry her, and she couldn't be bothered because Louis at the time has no money, has no status. That's a shitty thing to do. Or at least that's a shitty attitude to have. There's a shitty reason to kind of turn someone away. And then all of a sudden, as Louis starts advancing up in the ranks of this bank, and, uh, you know, family members mysteriously, quote-unquote, start dying, and he is seems like he's actually kind of in line for inheriting or, or becoming a duke, suddenly she's interested. And suddenly she doesn't want to be married to her husband anymore. And it was Louis that she wanted all along, and it's Louis who's the one that she wants to be with. And so... And he doesn't dissuade that. He... he plays that up and he teases that out and he and he pulls that and he 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 plays with that and manipulates that to an extent where eventually you sort of have um what he believes is sort of a no matter what's going to happen he's going to get off scot-free uh he's going to come out ahead because he's either going to um get out of jail where where the film starts and media rest and he's writing his memoirs of how he ended up there so he's either going to get out um because of uh Sibella, you know, finding, quote-unquote, the, oh, the suicide note of her husband, uh, and all he, uh, the only thing it's going to cost him is that he has to murder Edith, who he actually is married to. So he's either going to, uh, you know, he's going to get out of this, no matter what. Uh, and all he'll have to do is continue doing what he's already done, which is murdering people, which he seems to have no problem with, and which he seems to have somewhat of a propensity for, or a proficiency in. I don't know which of those P words is correct, but, you know, dealer's choice, basically. Um... So that was always sort of within Sibella, but he's made it worse because of what he wanted from her and because of what he wants to do. And he really, by the end, doesn't seem to care about her at all um, any further than just what can he use her for. Um, So we end up having this film where we're really kind of, we like nobody, uh, or or at least we... (laughs) We're not rooting for anybody, but everyone is also so humorous, and, and it's and it's hilarious to watch what's going on because of the dryness of the film, um, because of uh, the 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 detachment of our lead character who is narrating so much of what's going on. And you just kind of you you kind of get a sense, and, th- and this is um, attributed to Dennis Price as as Louis as the lead in his performance, where you get the sense like he's he's talking about murdering people um he's even saying stuff like uh you know it is so difficult to make a neat job of killing people with whom one is not on friendly terms um he's talking about murdering people but that he's also talking about like hmm this is he's he's saying in sort of a a a a logistical uh detached emotionally detached way of like 
I'm going to have to get close to these people because it's going to be very hard to kill them if I'm not close to them. That's, that's sociopathic or psychotic. I'm not sure which one it is. But, like, but it's entertaining to us because of how dry and how detached he sort of is. And that's entirely due to Dennis Price, who is wonderful, who is also matched in his wonderfulness by Joan Greenwood, who plays Sibella. And just the way that she plays this entitled sort of almost petulant person she she's a presence with every scene that she's in even even without knowing too much about her and she doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue in the film but like but just she's she's a presence and you really get the sense of you know after just one scene what kind of person she is and how we're not really on board with her and how we have these mixed emotions of we want louis to get what he wants but we also don't want her but then also maybe we don't want Louis to get what he wants because he's bad. So maybe we do want her to get something. It, it, it's 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 this wonderful emotional sort of intellectual confusion brought about by the fact that you have these wonderful performances from these wonderful actors playing within this world, which is satirical and uh, not condemning, but certainly poking fun at the aristocracy and how horrible these people all are uh, that are involved with it. Um <clears throat> When we're talking about performances, it would, I'd be remiss if I did not mention Alec Guinness, who plays eight different people in this movie. Um, and some of them, for a very short amount of time, I'm thinking specifically of the one female character that he plays, this, the, the Dascoin sister, who uh, meets her in timely end when <laughs> Louis shoots a bow and arrow into her hot air balloon uh, that she's flying over the city. Um, and... Uh, and uh, it's it's just his performances are, are not over the top because they're so brief for a lot of them. He has to sort of make them memorable right away. And it, and it's done through a combination of, of some makeup work. Certainly there's you can see different makeup and different wigs and facial hair through, uh, you know, from the banker to uh, young Henry to the Duke. Um, they're all very different. But then also in terms of uh, how they express themselves. The, the bishop is very feeble and very slow with his tone and slow with his speaking, but how he carries himself, his body language, it's... None of it is sort of Matthew McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club, um, you know, tragedy, pornography, over-the-top <clears throat> physicality. But he does bring a physical element and a and everything <clears throat> to these different characters and makes them all distinguishable from each other, even though they don't all get a whole lot of time on screen and we don't spend a whole lot of time with them. We spend a lot of time with the banker and we do kind of empathize and, and, and relate or, or connect with him because that's what Louis does. Uh, but we don't spend a lot of time with his sister. We don't spend a lot of time with the captain who goes down with his ship. But, but all of them are different and unique. And that's because of the talent of Alec Guinness. I had talked a little bit about this with Gavin, but I mean, you know, my first exposure to Alec Guinness was Star Wars, was Obi-Wan Kenobi, a, you know, a, a film in a role that he famously said was very boring because he was mostly just kind of standing in front of uh, backs, uh, you know, like backgrounds and backs and, and, and projections, you know, just kind of saying lines. He wasn't really being challenged. He wasn't doing much, but, you know, but it was also a guy that I saw on Bridge on the River Kwai and an unfortunate, um, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh brown face in, in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and then also in, in Dr. Zhivago. Like, this was a guy who has dramatic chops. 
um, a, a guy who has a, a wide range, and you see it all here, and it's it's it is absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, and <laughs> if you care to get a little film snooty uh, and and overanalyze things as I tend to like to do. Um, I should preface this by saying I don't necessarily agree with what I'm about to say, but I certainly want to float it out there and see if does someone latch onto it, does someone agree. But you could also say that having Allegheny's play all these all these different parts sort of feeds into this idea of uh, what the Ealing comedies were doing and what this film is doing, which is poking fun of and having a, a, a protagonist work against and trying to overcome a system or a power in the sense that by having one actor play all these different parts, even though they look differently, even though they sound differently, even though they act differently, there is still a, <clears throat> a subtle kind of subtextual uniformity um, a, a sort of dehumanizing or, 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 or homogenous sort of thing connecting all these people because uh, of perhaps you, you, you buy into the idea that uh, money corrupts, that power and wealth sort of makes everyone sort of the same in what they desire and what they want. Like you can't really you know, you've seen one wealthy, you know, corrupt, powerful person. You've seen them all. You know, it's just all it's just all different shades of the same kind of debauchery and and and, uh, and hedonism, if you will. So, uh, I think it is. It, it <laughs> once again, I don't necessarily believe this. Although now that I'm talking more about it, I might be talking myself into it. But I do like this idea that if you wanted to go with it, that that having this one actor play all these different parts, there is sort of this. Uh, homogenous kind of uniformity in regards to this this system that is pushing back that has pushed louis down that has pushed the poor people down the lower class down that he is kind of struggling um to to fight against and you know if you don't buy into that i totally believe you or i, I mean I, I totally understand that but i think that is something that you know could maybe be <clears throat> a part of this um but in and in, in like i said i I, I, I don't think that this film is a game changer. I don't have much more to say about it. I, I enjoyed it. I had a fun time with it, and, and I hope you, you did too. But one thing I, I do want to share, um, everything always goes back to Roger Ebert. Let's be honest with ourselves. But as I was doing research from this, I, I found that Kind Hearts and Cornets is actually in Roger Ebert's um, great movies list, uh, in which he, you know, review, not even necessarily reviews, but does write about, uh, movies from the, from the past, from his present, from all this, just basically, you know, uh, his compendium of what are the, the best movies, uh, over the course of history, basically. Um, it, it's a wonderful piece and I'll, I'll link to it, uh, on the Facebook page. Um, so I won't go too much into it, but there was one paragraph that I did want to quote specifically because, once again, I can spend an entire episode talking about a film. I've done this plenty of times, spending 25, 30, 40, 45 minutes talking about a, a film. And then Roger Ebert kind of summarizes everything I'm trying to say in one concise paragraph because he was an amazing writer and I am a podcaster. So those are two different things. But I did want to read this paragraph from uh, his great entries movie on Kind Hearts and Cornets because I think it encapsulates everything that I'm trying to say about this movie. So, 
Despite its murders and intrigues, its betrayals and blood feuds, Kindhearts and Cornets has a dry and detached air, established by the memoirs of Louis, who maintains a studied distance from the evils he has committed. Wounded by the slights to his mother, he essentially believes the dust coins are asking for it. The movie is unusually dependent on voiceover narration, objective and understated, which is all the funnier by being so removed from the sensational events taking place. Murder, Louis demonstrates, and Orwell would agree, can be most agreeably entertaining, so long as the story lingers on the eccentricities of the villain rather than on the unpleasant details of the crime. So I think he, he says it all there. there there's the, the reason that we're sort of able to involve ourselves with this and kind of get entertainment out of it is because of how detached Louis is, of, of how he doesn't seem to realize or or maybe doesn't want to realize or, or maybe just generally doesn't believe what he's doing is that terrible sure he's murdering people but i mean they 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 had it coming he, he has um what is it he has some kind of verbose um uh derivation of the the phrase um revenge is a, a dish best served cold which is something like um revenge people of taste would say is a dish that most enjoy being eaten while cold or something like it, it's 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 the same mentality but it adds that false eloquence to it that can't really cover up the fact that you're still talking about murdering a bunch of people and a a, a sense of 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 just sort of a, a misunderstanding of like what i'm saying is horrible here and that, and in that disconnect, that's kind of where the humor lies, and it's, it's super, it's super funny. Um, it's it's very entertaining, as he says. You know, if 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 the film did focus more on how he was killing the people and what delight he got out of it, it'd be harder to make this a comedy. But because it it focuses more on the absurdities of the people who are involved with it, not just the Das Coins, but Louis as well. And also how he doesn't so, sort of seem to realize how absurd he is. In that disconnect, we sort of find the humor. So once again, not one of my favorite films of all time. Not one of the funniest films I've ever seen. But something that was absolutely delightful. And I think a good entryway into the films I'm going to be exploring this month. You know, these, these things which did have um, this satirical look at uh class differences and certainly poking fun at a higher class but also not being but not condemning them uh not endorsing them either but just kind of showing us like isn't this isn't this weird isn't this stupid isn't this crazy um and just allowing laughter to exist in 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 a way that can be cathartic and in a way that can be entertaining in a way that can be um light and airy but also you know, enjoyable. Um, if you want to rewatch it or if you want to watch it for the first time, once again, as I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you have not seen this movie, I don't know why you're listening to this episode, but I appreciate you listening either way. Um, it is available for both rental and purchase on Amazon and iTunes. doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere, but it is significantly cheaper to rent it than if you wanted to purchase Whiskey Galore on DVD, as Gavin would like you to do. Um, for a one-time cheap payment of 50 American dollars. So, um, I am, uh, I, I don't want to say necessarily excited, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to, to the rest of this month because uh, of this, this template that, that this film has sort of set out for me. Um, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with light and airy. Like I said, as long as you're sort of enjoying it. And so far, um, I am enjoying it, and I hope you have uh, enjoyed it as well. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to disagree with me, if you want to agree with me, if you want to suggest something else entirely, um, it's easy enough to get in touch with me. You can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can follow me or tweet at me on Twitter at NolanFixesTeeth. Catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at BattleshipRetention.com. Go to the podcast drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly. You can chime in there on the comments field as well. Um, you can also uh, find me at IDoMoviesBadly.Podbean.com or on iTunes. And I'd have to assume anywhere else where you get your podcast. So... And that does it for Kind Hearts and Coronets. Thank you for listening, as always. Be sure to tune in next week. Oh, and I should say this. I know the publishing schedule has been a little bit weird and condensed because of just how scheduling has worked for November. Next week, we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming in regards to uh, an episode earlier in the week and then wrapping up uh, the third episode early in the following week as well. So um, this week was the only kind of anomaly in how we had two episodes have to kind of jam them in there because of how we got a late start in November, but um, just wanted to let you know that next week we will be back to regular scheduled programming with 1951's The Man in the White Suit, so be sure to tune in for that, where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.